Here we go, about to kick off episode 107 of The Far Middle. So get ready for 30 minutes of fun and thought-provoking material. Let's get this started with our sports dedication. This week we had a birthday for a football great who was an even greater personality and American. His name was Art Donovan. He was a defensive lineman for the Colts in the 1950s who had a stellar career that landed him in Canton's Hall of Fame. He was an intimidator. He played in an era when rough and tough, that was sort of the official code of the league. He talked about when he broke a leg and he was asked to play the next week. And he asked his coach how he could play with a broken leg. And the coach said, hey, when they snap the ball, just fall down. Donovan played in what many believe was one of the most important games in NFL history. That was the 1958 NFL championship game between the Colts and the New York Giants. That game ended in a 17-17 tie at the end of regulation. But since it was the championship game, it went into overtime, and that was the first NFL game to do so. I think over 40 million people watched that on national TV, and the game itself came to be known as the greatest game ever played. Art Donovan made a very crucial tackle during the overtime period, stopping the Giants, and that allowed Johnny Unitas, the quarterback for the Colts, to lead the team on an 80-yard scoring drive and win the game. Donovan, by the way, he was one of 12 Hall of Fame players in that game. Unbelievable sort of moment in football history. And Art, he got into the Hall of Fame way back in 1968. But I love Art Donovan for two other reasons beyond what he did on the gridiron and his accomplishments there. First one is his personality. Now, he was a big man, but his personality was even larger, uh, larger than life, in fact. And he was a great, fabulous storyteller. So watch the, um, the old NFL films archives with his stories from back in the day. Hilariously entertaining. Um, some of you constant listeners may recall his commercial cameos in the 1990s. He was a guest on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. He was also on Letterman numerous times. And he loved beer. He wrote a book. The title of the book was Fatso. Uh, the subtitle was Football When Men Were Really Men. It's a great read, by the way. And the guy would stop you in your tracks and make you listen because he just was so entertaining. And then the biggest reason why I respect and love Art Donovan is that when he was in high school, he was set to play football at a college known as Notre Dame. And after a semester, he enlisted in the Marines and fought in the Pacific Theater in World War II. He served four years, took part in some of the fiercest battles, including the Battle of Luzon, Okinawa, and Iwo Jima. And he was also an ammo loader on an aircraft carrier gun who had a pilot, by the way, on that flight crew on that same aircraft carrier by the name of George Bush. Donovan earned a place in the U.S. Marine Corps Sports Hall of Fame. He was the first pro football player to do so. And after the war, he completed his college career at Boston College. The greatest generation? You better believe it. Episode 107 goes to Fatso, the great American personality and football player, Art Donovan. Let's start our connections for this episode. Art Donovan was Catholic like yours truly, and Catholicism like all religions to some extent. It, it will at times take many things out there in the world that are very complex and then wrongly assign simple mystic explanations to them. So, you know, it's things like that, uh, that the sun revolves around the earth and not the other way around, or that there's creationism versus evolution, and so on, lots of other examples. And it's the classic age-old clash of science and religion. 
Today, it's particularly evident with the new religion being environmentalism and a complex topic such as climate. Now, if you want an example of how climate change is no longer about science and how it has morphed instead into a religion that is proffered to explain the unpredictable and the complex, I could give you plenty of examples, dozens of examples to choose from. But let's connect to one that I saw recently that illustrates the issue to perfection. Now, the topic of all things is air turbulence while flying. And there was an article in a well-respected national paper recently that discussed how meteorologists are now saying, or at least some of them are, that flights are getting bumpier. And I'm not sure how one measures the frequency and intensity of that tangible metric of flight bumpiness. wonder where one finds the historical data for that. But of course, the punchline was that the increasing frequency and intensity of flight bumpiness was due to and you know the answer by now, right? Climate change. Are you serious? I mean, meteorologists, they can't predict weather a year out. They can't tell you if it's going to rain in 10 days or not. And they can't pin or predict a hurricane landing point 48 hours out. But they know beyond a doubt that climate change is increasing the incident rate and frequency of air turbulence on commercial flights. What that doesn't uh, make much sense, does it? And when you read the article carefully, you ascertain what is going on here. There's some person out there, a self-credentialed scientist typically, who proffers up a study using dubious data and assumptions to manufacture a view that whatever the case might be, wind shear, et cetera, some metric has gone up by some percentage the past however many number of years. The same time that CO2 has gone up by 20 parts per million or 10 parts per million in the atmosphere or something like that. And then voila, the scientific eureka moment of the, using air quotes here, research climate change is causing increased wind shear or turbulence or more risk with flying. And then, of course, the obligatory prediction that goes along with this of something along the lines of, in the next 30 or 50 years, our research predicts air turbulence will grow by another Y percent or X percent. And then the media, like this national paper where I read the, uh, the story, it runs with the news, so to speak, placing a nice headline at the top as clickbait, because everybody flies and nobody who flies likes turbulence and it plays to anxieties and fears and it ties to the devils and sin of carbon and CO2 respectively and the religion, right? The church of climate, which it created to keep believers in line. And no one will ever hold this self-described researcher accountable for the predictions or for the methodology or for the agenda. Their funding will not be placed at risk. In fact, it will likely grow and the reputation will not be sullied if the effort was baseless. Instead, the reputation will be bolstered because it's not the scientific method at work. It's a PR campaign at work. Hey, modest increases in trace levels of atmospheric CO2, I don't think they're making flying inherently unsafe. Wear your seatbelt when you're in the air. And if you want to worry about flying, I would be much more concerned with the maintenance record of the aircraft that you're on and with the experience of the pilots flying the plane than what CO2 concentration levels have done. And by the way, if you really want to worry, remember your plane was built by the low bidder. And by the way, the opposite tactic is also employed with a campaign to present climate change as the evil that afflicts one and all. And we could connect to an example of such. So when climate change is proffered as that existential threat, it is to, of course, justify a policy portfolio that allows the architects to impose their will across society and economies. The power and the opportunity for the hucksters of the religion, it's found in the presented solutions to climate change, just like with any religion, 
or the real power and money are to be found in the prescribed paths to salvation from the evil. In this religion, the evil, of course, is carbon, or in the evil ways. And in this religion, those being high quality of life and energy affluence. And when the policies that have been imposed don't work, and worse yet, they start to create pain and cause problems, the tactics of distraction and finding false flags are heavily employed. And here's an example in the arena of climate policies where that occurs. So we're told that there's a code red, the menace of rising CO2, which then justifies climate change policies, which are advertised to improve quality of life and to grow the economy and to reduce CO2 emissions and to improve energy security. The climate policies, of course, do the exact opposite things. And before you know it, energy scarcity is created across the West and energy inflation rages across BTUs and kilowatt hours and horsepower. Energy inflation stokes up general inflation. Why? Because everything we make in a modern economy relies on energy as a feedstock and input. And on top of it, running the central bank printing presses nonstop for over a decade, it just adds gasoline to the inflation fire, and that's pun intended. So with inflation then raging out of control, central banks must raise rates, and that hurts certain sectors of the economy, particularly ones that got addicted to free money and negative real rates. People start to get angry, and the bureaucrat and politician feel the heat. The religion, the Church of Climate, starts to worry that its salvation of climate change policies will be exposed for what they are, which are effective means to control society as opposed to how they were preached to be the salvation to planetary doom. And what do the elite and experts and politicians do? They need to find a scapegoat, another devil, so to speak. And that's exactly the dynamic that we're seeing playing out in Europe, who has been devout followers of the Church of Climate well before us in America. Climate policies were instituted across the continent. Energy and security reared its head, which led to energy and then general inflation. Rates went up from the ECB, which crimped economic growth even further on top of inflation's crimping of economic growth. In general inflation and energy insecurity, they're not getting better. They're getting worse, and they're not going to be going away anytime soon. So the elites and the experts and the central banks, they need to point the finger at someone or something quick, which is the business community and capitalism. Let me explain. April saw consumer prices up 7% from a year prior in Europe, which means inflation is there to stay, and consumer prices affect consumers, which are also known as voters. And by the way, that inflation rate is 7%, it's over three times the target of the ECB for inflation, which means the central bank is going to have to keep driving interest rates higher unless they can find another way to delay the inevitable and shift the blame. That's where those evil business owners come into play. Economists and politicians are starting to complain to the media, which is then broadcasting to the masses, that businesses are, get this, passing on their higher costs to consumers by raising prices. And they're still making profits. The nerve of those businesses. Have they no shame? Look, constant listeners, we know a few economic truths that have been around as long as there have been economies. First, inflation is first and foremost a monetary phenomenon, as the great Milton Friedman taught us. That's the central bank's doing, not business's doing. Second, when you look to create energy scarcity under climate change policies, it will necessarily stoke general inflation in a modern economy. That's the doing of the environmentalist and the bureaucrat, not the business community. And third, 
business in the end will either pass higher costs through inflation onto consumers or they're going to go bankrupt in the long term. That's life in the competitive jungle that is the real economy. Now, all these economic truths, they've been buried and obfuscated by the left. And in their place, the fictions of convenience, whether it be modern monetary theory, MMT, or climate change policies to save the world, or the evils of capitalism being replaced by the nirvana of socialism, you pick it, but all of these fictions of convenience and the mysticism of the left, they have to be exposed for what they are and what is truly going to result in before it is too late. Mysticism plays well in the climate change marketing campaign because we stopped teaching our children math, science, and reading a while ago and replaced the teaching of core skills with indoctrination of ideology. We discussed many times on this podcast the shrinking competency scores of middle school and high school students across our public education system, but we haven't talked much about what is going on with student proficiency in civics and history. Well, I've got some troubling news uh, with this next connection because eighth grade test scores in U.S. history and civics fell to the lowest level on record last year. Yep, the lowest on record. And that's from the education department, which I suppose is not surprising because you would expect that if math and science scores are in the basement and if kids are not taught to read or write, then history and civics would not be in great shape either. Remember last year, it was reported U.S. students saw the largest drop in math scores ever. That drop wiped out nearly three decades of gains. And if you were wondering as to how bad these civics and history proficiency levels are, here you go. In 2022, eighth grade students scored an average of 258 out of 500 in the subject of history. That's about a 50% score. Ouch. So our society is devolving from one where logic and rational thought and science and meritocracy, those things prevail to the benefit of all into one where mysticism and control of the individual are the new orders of the day. I made a prediction a month or two ago on a prior episode of The Far Middle where I said we would see, within a year, the environmental movement under its code red flag look to start mandating what people ate, um, based on something like carbon footprint, of course. And I received, I got to tell you, a little bit of pushback or skepticism on that prediction when I aired it. And I've made my share of bad calls in the past when it comes to predictions. I thought Ryan Leaf would be a much better NFL quarterback than Peyton Manning when they both came out of college. Wrong on that one. But I think I got this call right, I'm sorry to say. Uh, Two weeks ago, came across some news about how Switzerland is trying to teach kids about the virtues of eating mealworms and locusts and crickets. And they're feeding the kids these bugs in snacks. And that's the true exemplar of what one would call an acquired taste for sure. So why are the Swiss forcing this, what some would consider abuse, on their kids? Because of the environmental movement. You see, eating bugs has a lower carbon footprint than consuming beef. And I'm sure that's true when you do the carbon accounting. But once again, we see Code Red for what it is. It's not about atmospheric CO2 or future temperatures. It's in the end all about control of the individual and stifling of choice. You want a burger? It won't come from beef. If you want one, it's going to be made from bugs. Code Red demands it. Now, remember the soup Nazi from Seinfeld? No soup for you? What we're about to get a dose of across the West is the food Nazi. No beef for you. Eat more bugs. Just wait. You'll see, constant listeners. It's coming. And a funny side note to this story was a quote from a French senator. Now, here's the quote from the senator. 
This European Commission, which gives into anti-meat lobbies and which undermines our gastronomic culture, I don't want it anymore. I invite those who wish to eat crickets to come and eat them directly in my meadows. They will be natural, whole, unground, and unprocessed. That's a good one, Senator. But I fear you're going to get more, much more, of your European Commission in the coming years, not less. This discussion about how environmentalism is about forcing change of the individual through state control, it gets me thinking about another connection, that to the topic of fairness or equity, whichever term you prefer. When someone from the left speaks of fairness, be aware of what that will necessarily mean to someone like you or Americans in general. You won't like where it ends, even if you want to like how it sounds at the start. Let me give you an example. Environmentalists for years inject the concept of fairness into global accords and agreements on how to tackle climate change. You probably heard the logic by now. The developing world should be subsidized by the developed nations when reducing CO2 because as Western developed nations enjoyed the use of energy and its emissions that came with it over decades. Meanwhile, you know, why should the developing world have to suffer with an energy-constrained universe now that we have Code Red? It's an emergency that the rich developed world created. That's the argument that's put forth to justify massive transfer payments from places like the United States and Europe to the developing world. And that idea has been working its way into the climate-focused accords and policies across the globe, and particularly in the UN frameworks. The concept underlying it all is that of fairness or equity. And on the surface, it sounds okay. But then think about it. Fairness necessarily, when you do the math, requires those above the mean on whatever metric the policy is focusing on to lower themselves by the transfer payments in the policy that go to the less well-off. So in the example of climate reparations, the United States and Europe will inevitably experience a lowering of standards so that the developing world will enjoy a raising of standards. It's a zero-sum game when it comes to value appropriation, even when done under the banner of fairness or equity. And before you jump to the conclusion that these reparations for climate would be paid for by only wealthy Americans or by rich Europeans, think again, because the middle class in the West is way, way above the standard of living of anywhere else in the developing world. Last episode, we discussed how workers paid at minimum wage in the United States sit at the 85th percentile of global income distribution. Workers at minimum wage here, they're viewed as fantastically wealthy by those in sub-Saharan Africa or in Bangladesh. The middle class here is viewed as obscenely wealthy by those nations. And what it tells us is that the idea of climate reparations or concepts like it, it might advertise fairness doctrine as justification, but fairness is a zero-sum game that is relative when it comes to value appropriation. The ox that gets gored in the end, and those who lose value and revert down to the mean, are more than you think, and not as well off as you might think. It all depends on where the individual falls relative to that magical mean or standard that will be drawn by the bureaucrat under the policy details and guts. Notions of fairness, climate changing over millions of years, the mysticism of the left, these issues all roll into something I've been mulling for quite some time and that I would like to next connect to. I'm going to get deep here, constant listeners, so fair warning. Modern human beings, they've been around for about 300,000 years. So think about that. I do think about that all the time, actually. What freaks me out about that is that our history books and museums, they basically say human history began about 6,000 years ago. 
in Mesopotamia or wherever. And I always think of that chapter one, right, of your world history book in high school that showed the, uh, the Tigris-Euphrates rivers as the cradle of civilization. Well, that means our history covers a very small portion of the actual history of humans, 2% to be exact, 6,000 years out of 300,000 years. And was that prior time or 98% of that time unimportant? Was it prehistory? Do you still think nothing of significance was happening then in Africa or wherever the first humans appeared simply because we own nothing of it or we don't remember any of it? Over 294,000 years of humans roaming this planet, not covered in what we call history. So what was society then? What was it? Uh, was it tribal based? How were leaders chosen? Did the tribe strong arm compliance with norms by force? Um, what were family norms? Who or what was God? What was atmospheric CO2 during prehistory? Who was the first great general or the first great thinker? Um, when was the first battle? You know, how many combatants do you need before something becomes a battle? And when was that? Um, were we always in a state of conflict? And did we always experience things like ethnic cleansing and states of war? I think that we were. It's sort of in our species DNA, perhaps. So let me share with you how I got to thinking about this topic. So I'm reading about World War II recently in North Africa and Sicily and up the spine of Italy. And I'm thinking about all those soldiers during those campaigns from the different sides and the civilians. And they were in many ways, uh, these battles across sort of North Africa and Italy, they were some of the more brutal campaigns of the entire war with all kinds of, of killing, much of it indiscriminate. And I initially think that we today would never engage in that type of barbarism um, that was experienced in World War II because we've evolved past that, right? But then I think about Ukraine and what's going on there or Sarajevo not long ago. And then I start to think backward to World War I, which wasn't even a full generation removed from World War II. No lessons learned in 20 short years of time between those two world wars. We keep repeating ourselves over and over. And here's where I'm going. You pick your point and place in history. It can be anywhere. So you can pick today in Ukraine. The 1940s during World War II, where I'm currently reading about, or the time of the Aztecs in Mexico. You can go back hundreds of years, thousands of years. Go back to the start of history, hundreds of thousands of years to the start of humans. It doesn't matter because you see the same things. Technology advances, knowledge grows, but a few things do not change over 300,000 years of humans on the earth. First, someone was there before you, and someone was there before them, and on and on. We have no idea what tribe or nation or people have the original claim to a certain plot of geography on the map at ground zero. We know the humans live in constant strife with one another. As I said, it looks like we're violent as a species just by nature. And the norms of a society or culture or nation or cave dwelling, right, they serve to contain our nature and our conflicts. They protect us basically from ourselves. And that bothers me. I want to think that we don't need protected from ourselves. You also see that everything is relative and we are statistically irrelevant in the long term, yet we humans arrogantly view 300,000 years in the exclusive absolute lens of that little pinpoint in time when we occupy the earth. If atmospheric CO2 is 400 parts per million today, then we assume today any change will be unacceptable. If we fought a war, it's the war to end all wars for sure. If we've got views regarding the family unit or social norms, they reflect the fully informed perfection of the issue and should never change from here forward, and so on. 
You know, all this leads me to a handful of beliefs that shape my thinking or philosophy on life. First, where we are today is insignificant in the big schemes of time and history and the human story. Our differences that we have with one another, they're mostly superficial and largely insignificant. But second, you are unique and what you do will never be done again. So make the most of it and take nothing for granted and leave nothing on the field. Also, you know, the individual, it reigns supreme. The individual should be protected to exercise freedom of choice. But humans are a violent species and they will clash by nature. Thus, some minimum level of norms or government, dare I say, will be needed to protect the individual from the rest of us, I suppose. Like I said, deep thoughts from a simple mind, but thoughts that permeates uh, the far middle topics from episode to episode that I wanted to share. And speaking of the individual and the individual ability to strive, let's connect to a great individual who we lost recently. You know, I mentioned last week the passing of Ahmad Jamal. I need to also pay tribute to another musical genius who passed a few weeks ago. That is the great Canadian singer-songwriter Gordon Lightfoot, who died at 84 years of age. I love that man's work. 60-year career. The guy was touring into his 80s. And he was one of those first performers I heard as a kid, thanks to AM radio and cars. Lightfoot was all over those AM airways in the 70s. He's basically Canada's Bob Dylan. And Dylan loved Gordon Lightfoot, by the way, as did Elvis and Johnny Cash. So Gordon Lightfoot, he had an ability to combine lyrics and music into what I would call a mood. He didn't create songs or hits. To me, he created moods. So when he sang about the rain, you felt like you were in the rain. And he, like so many of these artists, he was a bit of a complicated guy. He had a strong affinity for the bottle, unfortunately. And he had, shall we say, a wandering eye with the opposite sex. And he rolled all those imperfections into his craft. Creative destruction, perhaps? I don't know. But I do know that the man was special. And his biggest hits, of course, were The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald and If You Could Read My Mind and Sundown. Um, Now, I love those songs, but my favorite two songs from Gordon Lightfoot were not those. My two songs that were the favorite, uh, they were decent hits of their own, but they weren't as big of hits as those prior three. My first favorite was Carefree Highway. You listen to that song and tell me you don't feel a mood. Here's a verse from that song that speaks to his abilities. Turning back the pages to the times I love best. I wonder if she'll ever do the same. Now the thing that I call living is just being satisfied with knowing I got no one left to blame. Awesome. My other favorite song from Lightfoot, it was a bit of a minor hit later in his career. It was titled The Circle is Small. And this one has an interesting sort of backstory to the lyrics. And it sort of speaks to that creative destruction that uh, I mentioned that he displayed. So Lightfoot was married in the 1970s and uh, he and his wife, they lived in a large complex of circular condos that were high rises in Toronto. And the two of them fell on tough times, and they both started to wander into affairs with others who lived in these same massive circular condo towers. So he wrote a line to the song that sort of captures what was going on. And the line reads, the city where we live might be quite large, but the circle is small. Again, that's awesome. I read once that, uh, that Lightfoot knew quite well about that creative destruction that he displayed, both the good and the bad with it. He said, talking about the past is dangerous territory but it does make for a good storytelling. Ain't that the truth when it comes to Gordon Lightfoot? By the way, if you want to learn more about him and how those songs came together, 
watch an excellent documentary. It's titled, If You Could Read My Mind. It's outstanding, shows Lightfoot toward the end of his life in a much better place, by the way, in a much better frame of mind. I'm glad that he made it to that place before the end came. I'll leave you with a quote from the father of an industry friend of mine. And I'm not sure if this was borrowed from someone famous in history or if it came direct from my friend's dad, but it fits him, that person that I know, and his son to the core. And I believe there is some serious wisdom in it for all of us. Surround yourself with people who will fight for you when you are not in the room. Well said. Let's fight for each other in those rooms this week, constant listeners. Roger and out.